Welcome in to Locked On Knicks. Today we have a very special guest, Mike Vorkanov of the hottest publication on the internet, The Athletic. He's covered the Knicks the past year after stints covering the Mets and a number of other teams for a variety of organizations, including the New York Times, USA Today, Vice Sports, and we go over quite a bit with him, Alex. Yeah, so first we break down the excellent article that Gavin has referenced approximately 300 times over the <laughs> summer that he wrote. Uh, breaking down the three Knicks rookies from last year and what they've been working on this summer, getting to Alonzo Trier, Kevin Knox, and Mitchell Robinson a little bit. Then we move on to the point guard battle in our second segment and discuss Frank Nilakina versus Dennis Smith Jr. versus Alfred Payton. And then finally end off with some rapid-fire questions, including talking a bit about Mike's time on the beat and which uh, revisiting a theme from our previous episode of uh, ranking which Knicks are – most likely to make an all-star team at some point in their career. All that's coming up and more on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Knox foul from behind. Count one. What he does is contagious. Robinson with a catch and slam. Across the lane to Trier. You are locked on Knicks, and as promised, we are joined by the Athletics, uh, Mike Borkinov. Uh, we were just talking about it pre-show a little bit, but I've, I think I've referenced the excellent article he wrote on Alonzo Trier, Mitchell Robinson, and Kevin Knox's offseason, like each of the last 15 to 20 episodes. So it's a pleasure to, to finally have you on, Mike, and get a chance to talk about it with you. I'm happy to come on, guys. What's going on? And, uh, yeah, so I wanted to, I wanted to start off actually getting just like a little bit of, of background on you because I, I remember, I, I think like the first time I started reading you was with The Athletic and I just was, was NBA beat writing always the goal for you? Was it always the goal to write about the Knicks specifically or how, how did you sort of, um, get into this? Um, I, I guess NBA beat writing was the goal. Honestly, for a while there, I was just trying to get any kind of job, um, in, in sports journalism. I love the NBA. I've loved the NBA since I was a kid. Uh, so this is, you know, my favorite, like, this is the optimal outcome for me, basically. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, covering the NBA is, is awesome. It's a dream come true. It's a dream job. Covering the Knicks is really fun. I grew up in Brooklyn and Jersey, and so, you know, the, the team's, that's the team that you always followed, right? And all your friends were fans of the Knicks. It's kind of the monolith basketball team in the area, um, although we can kind of debate that going forward if, if that's going to be true. But um, this is, you know, this is something I've wanted to do for a while. I covered college football and college sports, and I covered the Mets for a few years, and then I was lucky enough to get this gig. So uh, just from, like, just this is just a small curiosity of mine before we get into the the Knicks talk itself, because I think the athletic is pretty interesting. The way you know the way that they've really capitalized on this new business model that nobody else was really taking advantage of. How have things been different for you? Uh, you know, you, you were writing previously before the athletic uh, with the New York Times, and you know you did some Knicks coverage there as, as well as some other stuff, um, and then you know moved to the athletic to write about the Knicks there as their beat writer. What, like, has been the differences of doing an online-only, like, quote-unquote newspaper versus when you were writing for an actual newspaper? Like, does it change how you write your articles because you can incorporate different things in almost a blog style while still having that, like, legacy media access that you have? Uh, you know, I I shudder to call this an online newspaper. I think it's kind of freeform in terms of the work that we do. Um Honestly, I don't really know what newspaper writing is anymore per se. I think for the better, um, the way that stories of all kinds have evolved and we've kind of seen this like, um, I don't know, this this amalgam of writing come into sports writing the last few years where not, it's not just like, you know, you've, you've had the influence of like blogging, you had the influence of long form journalism, you've had the influence of like newspaper people, all the people who kind of came up in these different avenues. Um, and now, you know, like if you look at the athletic or if you look at my work, some days I'll write like 800 to a thousand words and I'll be closer to like a normal newspaper story. Sometimes it'll be like 2000 words. Sometimes it'll be more like bloggy and analysis. And so I think the form really, um, doesn't need to be 
archetyped as much, which is great, and I love it. And at the times, it was different. You know, I freelanced for them for about, like, a season and a half, and the biggest change is just deadlines. Um, and I think you'll hear a lot of newspaper or people who wrote at newspapers say that when they go to The Athletic, and it sounds cliche, and it really is, but uh, the lack of deadlines makes a difference in how often you write, um, the time you get to write about things. Um, sometimes it just affects your reporting process and just your uh, the way you conceptualize things, right? And, you know, the times, I think, <laughs> the times of all newspapers didn't really uh, constrict itself with deadlines a lot of the times. But, you know, if you're writing off a game like it is what it is, uh, it's nice to just be able to take my time with things. You know, I can take a month on a story if I want to, and I don't have to write every day. It allows you to think uh, about things from a big-picture perspective, which you don't have that luxury if you're covering the team on a day-to-day basis. Um and you have to write every day, and that's freeing. It's it's basically the the best thing I can say about the athletic is that I can pretty much do whatever I want um, and write it whenever I want, and that's I mean that's like you know that's manna from heaven for uh, any kind of writer. And, and and I guess to to start getting into the piece a little bit, my my biggest takeaway from it was um, how you let off the piece with Alonzo Trier and everything he's working on this offseason because I I was just sort of stunned by like the fact that he put up numbers last year didn't blow me away it it was how efficient he was just from from the get-go and it seems like the Knicks have really placed a premium on him on basically I guess seeing what like the XY curve is and seeing like what the statistical trade-off is and him shooting threes at a higher volume can he maintain that percentage can he maintain that efficiency and I guess I just wanted to get your feel for all that Mike and whether last season was a little bit of a mirage and just sort of a product of him taking the right shots at the right time or if he's legitimately a really high level shooter and he could turn into I, I hesitate to say a star but I mean pretty clearly one of the best six men in basketball doing this over a higher volume yeah it's going to be interesting for sure you know I, I do think it was um, worthwhile and notable that the Knicks told him specifically that he should work on his threes and I think that was one of the little criticisms of his game when he was a rookie was that he did shoot well from three but he didn't shoot often enough I think he shot like a little bit over two threes per game which in the NBA really isn't that much anymore, and especially you want more of them if you're shooting 39%. Um, I didn't delve deeply enough to see like what kind of threes he was taking, you know, from where they were, off the dribble, off the pass, catch and shoot, all that type of stuff. And, and I think uh, if I had to guess, he probably was a reserve three-point shooter in that he wouldn't shoot it until he had a good look, right? Uh, the thing with shooting more often is that you're going to be less judicious about the type of shots you can get. But if he settles into like being a 37% three-point shooter um, and a higher volume one, that's that's pretty good. The Knicks don't have that on their roster right now. They have to go outside the organization and get Reggie Bullock and Wayne Ellington just for guys who can spread the floor. And obviously Trier is much more versatile than they are offensively his off the dribble skills are obvious right he's already one of the best iso players in the league uh, you know statistically uh, and just watching him work and it, it's going to be interesting i i wonder and it, this is kind of the thing hanging over this entire season for the knicks at least as of right now when everyone's healthy is you know what do they do with him what do they do with guys like knox and Milikina and um even rj barrett to some degree you know how many minutes is he going to get you bring in you know six healthy players at the beginning of the season vets um they're going to want their time i i assume they sign with the knicks for the considerable money that they did thinking they'll get time and coaches always love vets more than rookies because they give you less headaches um and, and so we'll see how much playing time sure gets and if he continues his developmental curve a lot of that is going to be dependent on him playing and producing and and i don't know how much he'll play right now and and that's not necessarily his fault but it's also just a, a condition of where the knicks are in their roster construction you know, it's actually funny. I looked it up while you were talking to see uh, the percentage of threes they shot on catch and shoot versus pull up, and it actually surprised me. Uh, he he shot of his overall like field goal attempts. It was thirteen percent were catch and shoot threes, twelve point six percent were pull ups, according to this. And he shot actually quite a bit better on catch and shoot by the end of the year, which I know was something that I was harping on. Uh, throughout the season back when he was shooting well less than one attempt uh, per game on those. So I'm kind of curious, Mike, like, what do you think? Do you think that I, I know Gavin is a strong believer in this, that Trier could potentially have a star turn in him um, for something greater, maybe than just this, this great six man that he looks like he could potentially be. Uh, do you think that that's something that you could see happening for him? And if so, how do you think he might, 
go ahead, you know, go about reaching like a new level of, of player where he, he might be like a consistent starter or something rather than just this guy that we've sort of pigeonholed him as, as being like a Lou Williams type, which certainly there's nothing wrong with that at all. Well, I would say the pigeonholing, or if we want to call that, calling him a Lou Williams type, came from David Fisdale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess first I have to ask, what do you mean by starter? And are we talking about a guy who becomes a starter on a good team? Or are we talking about like an actual star? I just wanted to find that first. Yeah, Someone that could I, I guess I'll, I'll clarify that because I, I think it's more. I think it's more my like. I think Alex is high on him, but I'm um, like, and I, I think like even reading your article and just like thinking of him as like a more diverse shooter and someone who could still be a really efficient scorer. I, I guess it'd be one of two things. I, I see him like either as like a perennial six man of the year candidate or or someone who could like credibly like average like twenty points per game on a good team with the right types of guys around him. I, I just think he is that level of score. My my big question is like, can he? put up those numbers and in doing so really contribute to winning by like rounding out his game, improving defensively, improving as a playmaker. But I, I'm like, I guess, I guess my core point is I'm a big believer, like in his prime, like he's a guy who should average 20 points per game. Well, I guess I'll say like the reason why he worked last year um, and, and where his skill set is, is he's kind of uh he's a ball stopper in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you want to see him become a starter on a good team and a good starter on a good team, it's how will he work within that team construct? Right. Like basically, if you're going to be the guy who becomes a ball stopper and everything runs through you you kind of have to be the best player on the team. Right. Um, especially a good team. So can you eventually see him getting to that point? Um, I, I don't know. Like I could see him becoming a more uh, high volume, slightly less efficient three point shooter. Sure. Like if he's taking five, six threes a game and he's shooting like 36%, that's good for him in the long term. He'll probably always be a good ISO scorer. Um, although I, I think teams got a little better guarding him at that as the year went on because I kind of understood what he wanted to do and which ways he wanted to go. Um, he's got to get better defensively, right? The the thing that I I want to figure out is. He was a good rookie on a really bad NBA team last year. Um, the Knicks signed a lot of wings, and so he'll have more competition at that position. And, and really, this is the question I have for everything that they did is, like, did they just sign vets because they want to get better? And signing vets is obviously the best way to do that, especially quickly. Or is that also indicative of what they think of the young players they have in the organization, including uh, Alonzo Trier? So... I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I ever see him becoming like a really good starter on a good team. Uh, I could see him averaging 20 points per game. Like, <laughs> you know, Lou Williams put up like what was almost an all-star season a few years ago, right? Like, that's not a bad outcome for him to have. I, I would say that's nearly a star turn in its own right. Um, like, will he become the, the number one scoring option on a playoff team? That <laughs> There's so few guys who do that, so I don't know if I could predict that much. But um, I think if he can just kind of ensconce himself just as, like, a really good six man, that that's a lot, man. That That's asking for a pretty good outcome for uh, an undrafted guy. I actually – I'm fully with you right there. I, I totally think that's the case, and that would be a fantastic outcome for him. Uh, I figure we should probably move on to Mitchell Robinson. I actually can't believe – you know, it almost feels weird when we get more than five minutes into a podcast and haven't even said his name yet. Um, you wrote in your article, and, you know, Mitch has been saying this, and, you know, other people around him have been saying this, that he's working on a three-point shot for this year. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, based off talking to him and talking to others, do you feel like that is really something that he is going to bust out next year? Or do you think that they're maybe just kind of talking it up and and perhaps, it, you know, they're going to realize that it would be better for him to just kind of play the role that he has been playing and, and gobble up rebounds, be there for putbacks, be there for alley-oops and things of that nature? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I expect him to bust out the three-point shot um, this year. You know, I, he he wants to shoot threes. He, you know, that's what he was saying he'd do, and he's going back to work on. And I remember talking to his trainer last summer uh, before he played and saying like, oh, you know, he's got a premier shot. He can shoot threes. And his coach, his high school coach, said he shot him at a 38% rate when he was a senior at Chalmette. Um I just don't think a shot is there yet. You know, it's still he was a 60% free throw shooter. Um, before we even get to threes, right? Like his free, th- he's got to become a better free throw shooter of all things. And there's usually a pr- pretty good correlation um, between how good you are as a free throw shooter and whether you become a good three point shooter. And so I, I got to see that improve. I-, I think you know there's there's opening up a uh, 
manifold issues if you're trying to put him as a three-point shooter, right? Like, if you try to put him out there and try to make him a three-point shooter, you know, even as a catch-and-shoot type of guy, if he, like, pops out after setting a pick, like, eventually he's got to put the ball on the floor, and I don't think his ball handling is there yet. Um, and his rim-running skill is a real weapon, and especially this year when you might have some shooting around them and you might have other offensive players who are threats where all the attention can't go to him when he's running off the pick. Uh, I, I just think that the Knicks really want to use last year to play to their strengths, which were blocking shots, dunking, and kind of being that vertical challenge that he was for most teams. And I, I don't know how many steps forward he'll take, especially like if you want him to expand his offensive game, I, I think that's great, and he should do that. But also, you know, every shot he takes is at the cost of what are right now better offensive players in that offense, guys that you've imported to make yourselves a better team. Um, yeah, I'm so, so oh, go, ahead. go ahead, Alex. I was going to say, are you sort of of the opinion that, you know, he, he should probably just stay more towards perfecting what has already kind of makes him great rather than trying to add all these potentially superfluous things? Because you brought up a great point that roster construction now really kind of, kind of, it, it almost dictates that he should just keep working on that rim running and stuff because they, they actually did add some guys that presumably can shoot all the way from the one through the four spot. Um, that could potentially shoot now. Yeah, for sure. Like, and his presence really, you know, can open up the floor for other guys. Like, we've seen what really good rim runners can do for an offense elsewhere. Uh, and he was good as a rookie, like, but he can get better too, you know, you know, as a finisher, uh, as just even taking steps forward, like adding a little bit of a jumper threat from like 10 feet and in, you know, he didn't do that. You look at a shot chart last year, like, I think he took two jumpers, I want to say, like two shots from outside of 10 feet, like, it's baby steps um, with him. He's still a very raw player. So I, I think it would be – I don't remember many guys, many big guys especially, who just over the course of one summer went from literally not taking shots outside of 10 feet to being a three-point shooter. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think when you're trying to figure out who takes what shots in this offense, that's not the jump you want to see him make unless he is just – you know, like unless he's legit a dead-eye shooter now. And I guess maybe the, the biggest enigma of anyone you wrote about in your article was Kevin Knox. And you, you sort of focused on, or at least he's focusing on, his ability to finish around the rim. And I, I thought it was interesting. There was a quote. I can't remember which assistant coach it was, but one of the Knicks coaches was basically saying the idea for him would be to turn a lot of shots that were like little like floaters or push shots or sort of layups where he'd have to like do like the whole extendo arm thing and really like stretch to get it close to the basket into dunks, and I think you also know in your article he was one of the least efficient players dunking the basketball last season. In Summer League, we saw a bigger Kevin Knox. We saw a more efficient Kevin Knox. I guess my question for you is how much of that translates into the next season? We've seen so often with these young wings, like it usually is like a two-, three-, four-year process to really fully adjust to the NBA, especially when you come in as young as Knox was a year ago. But I guess I'm just interested to see like how, how good can he be around the basket next year. I assume he'll get better. You know, it's something they worked on with him for the entirety of the year was jumping a little bit later so he's not so far out when he leaves his feet to attack the rim. You know, he missed 8 of 26 dunk attempts. It was the third lowest shooting percentage. Just reading from my story of anyone who tried at least 20 dunks, he shot 48% at the rim, which was ninth percentile amongst all forwards, according to including Glass. So you, you saw it in the video, too, like he would – Leave the floor, you know, he would leave the court too early and he put himself in awkward positions or he tried to finish funny and, you know, it, it would just be, he wouldn't put himself in the best spot to try to finish at the rim. And some of it sometimes was just like hubris. Like he would just think he could dunk on anyone and that's what you want, right? Like eventually those will come down or you kind of figure out how to finish there and get around guys midair. Um, but he was 19, like he'll be 20 this year. He's a little bit bigger. He's more experienced, obviously. And these are all things he didn't really do at Kentucky. He hadn't had a lot of experience doing them against his peers. And I don't really count high school to be your peers when you're a player like Kevin Knox. So this is just all part of the learning curve for him. I think he'll be a lot better. Usually guys are in their second season, especially when you come in as young as he did. Um, but I, I don't know how much better. And that that's a significant question because he's got to earn his playing time, too. Yeah, so um, I think we could probably take a quick break. We'll uh, take a quick rest before our, our next segment and uh, come back, discuss the, the Knicks point guard log jam that they have going on and some more stuff we'll get back to Locked on Knicks. Hey, are you in the New York area and looking to promote your business to a young, predominantly male demographic? 
then Locked On Knicks is the podcast for you. 80% of our listeners fall between the ages of 18 and 44, and 98% of those listeners are male. As the top Knicks podcast on the market, we offer a unique opportunity to engage with basketball fans in the city. If interested in an ad spot or live read, email LockedOnKnicks at gmail.com for more information on pricing and availability. Our rates are very affordable compared to radio and offer a chance to reach an audience on an ever-growing platform. All right, welcome back to Locked On Knicks with Mike Vorkanov of The Athletic. Uh, Mike, we the, the a big thing that's come up now over these last couple weeks has been the Knicks point guard situation. Not that it wasn't already kind of an issue, but it was it was assumed that it was just going to be Dennis Smith Jr. fighting Alfred Payton for the job, more or less. Uh, and it seemed as if before the FIBA World Cup that Frank Nilakina had kind of fallen out of favor and might even struggle to get any minutes at any position for the Knicks this year. Uh, I'm kind of curious, though. Uh, obviously, Frank had the FIBA World Cup that he did, uh, started for France for most of that, and France ended up uh, taking home the bronze medal. And I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are. I, I felt that the perception that the Knicks strongly dislike Frank is a little overblown, and I think that they did gauge his value around the draft and stuff, but I don't know necessarily – to me, it seems like they're going to give him a shot, at least. Um, do you think that they're going to give him a fair shot at cracking the rotation and maybe even cracking the point guard rotation uh, during camp and leading into the season? Yeah, I mean, I think they'll give him a shot. Like, he's going to have to earn his minutes if he plays really well. I think they play him. I don't know if he's going to be a point guard for them. I don't think, uh, based on the two years he's been here in, um, in New York, and I think last last season – I don't think that the Knicks view him as a point guard. I think they view him as kind of more of a combo guard, a guy who can go out to the wing and do all that type of stuff and be a secondary ball handler. Um, and that's maybe that's that's the right way to view him. And I, my opinion was always just give him the reps at point guard to see what he can do uh, and have him prove that he can't do it rather than just always be left wondering. And now is not really the time for that anymore because the Knicks are trying to be more competitive this year. Um I, I don't know, like, yeah, if he plays well, he can earn his minutes. It, but, again, as you guys said, like, there's a lot of guys there. You know, Dennis Smith Jr., Alfred Payton, Trier played some backup point last year. I'm curious how they're going to use R.J. Barrett because I, I think there's some thinking that immediately at least he might be uh, most potent as kind of like a ball handler, point guard role, considering what he can do at this point in time. So it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be an, an uphill slog for him. Um, I, I, and I'm, you, you brought up the name Alfred Payton, and I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the Knicks' logic of bringing him in, because I mean, I mean, clearly, I mean, there's an emphasis on being a little bit better this year and not being the worst team in the NBA for a second year in a row. I, I just don't know how much Alfred Payton helps you in that pursuit, and I, I think the way he, like, the logic for it would be he'd improve the young guys with how good of a passer he is, but in my mind, that's so mitigated by how atrocious of a shooter he is overall. If I was running the Knicks, which clearly I'm not, and not totally qualified for, but I, I would just sort of have gone into the season saying, you know, I'm fine with whoever between Dennis Smith Jr. and Frank Nilakina wins this battle. I don't really have a huge problem with Kadeem Allen as my third point guard, but what, what do you think their rationale there was? Uh, I, I think Scott Perry seems to be a longtime fan, right? He drafted a, uh, Peyton in Orlando, um, and they do need a backup point guard. Like, if you don't think that Frank Nilakina is a point guard, or if he's you know, good enough right now to play backup point guard. They need a backup point guard. Uh, you know, the eight million dollars, like in a vacuum, yes, it's a lot for a backup point guard. But they had the money, and you know, it's, it seems like it's pretty much a one-year deal. And um, that's you know, they get a guy who's competitive with Dennis Smith Jr. I don't know if it says how much they do or do not trust Dennis Smith Jr. And Peyton has some skill sets. He's a good facilitator, and. You know, they need, they need a guy who can pass and make things happen, especially this year, and kind of get the ball moving around. Uh, but he's got legitimate warts in his game, and, and there's a reason he's, what, I think on his fourth team now in the last two seasons, yeah. I want to say. Uh, and th th those are obvious, and I just, I, you know, like, I don't know, maybe he, maybe he just ends up playing 15 minutes a night. It's just a classic backup point guard who can't really shoot and just kind of gets the offense going. And, Maybe in a worst-case scenario for the Knicks, um, he's the guy who usurps Dennis Smith Jr. and starts as the point guard then. Yeah, well, speaking of Dennis Smith Jr. then, uh, a lot of people, I mean, we've talked about this a number of times on this show because there's only so much stuff to talk about throughout the summer, so things keep coming up. But uh, 
Uh, Dennis Smith Jr., a lot of people see potentially making a big leap. Um, I know you're you're very into stats and, and, you know, looking into, you know, correlations and stuff. And a lot of people have looked at, like, guys like Kemba Walker, D'Angelo Russell as point guards that came in with kind of a scoring reputation into the NBA like Dennis Smith Jr. came in with and didn't necessarily put it together right away as far as efficiency is concerned, which Smith has obviously struggled with. And then made a leap uh, around year three or four. So I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on DSJ as far as do you think that he could make a leap like that this year? And, you know, first off as a jump shooter, because that was his biggest issue and will be the biggest thing that determines how far he goes in the NBA, I think. Um, but also just overall, I, just as a, a decision maker and someone who can run a team and run an offense, do you see that there potentially being a, a leap there for him this year? To me, it all just comes down to his jump shot. Like, that's what he says he's been working on uh, this whole summer. And I think the change, at least from what I'm hearing, could be significant. But we've heard that before, right, at least in terms of form. Um, if that's the case, and, like, if he actually becomes a good shooter, what did he shoot last year from three? It wasn't something good. I, I think he's a lifetime 31% shooter from three. Like, that's bad. Uh, if he can get up to just league average, I think that changes his game significantly. Uh, he's so dynamic off the, you know, off the pick and roll, um, attacking the rim that when he gets and earns even more um, of an ability to do that and having guys who have to hug him now at the top of the key because they're scared he might shoot and what he does when he gets into the lane, that'll be really interesting. But I, that's the one thing I, I just can't predict, and I don't really know how you predict it. It's just like when you hear guys trying to change his jump shot over the course of a summer – um, just <laughs> you're trying to figure out whether that'll work or not, right? That's something we can't see and we can't evaluate until it just happens and he comes back into the season. And if he can't shoot, then it's, you know, maybe all the good point guards in this league who can't shoot. There's like Russell Westbrook and, you know, there's not many others, right? Yeah, and he, he just seems like the archetype of a player that David Fisdale really likes. I mean, clearly there was like that irrational love and commitment to Emmanuel Moutier a year ago. But I, I'm just curious to hear what you think, how committed the Knicks are to him overall. And if he doesn't make a significant improvement, then he is essentially the same player next season. Do you think he's a guy they could move on from as soon as before this trade deadline? Or, or do you think they really want to let him play out the year and, and fully see what they have in him? I would be surprised if they move on from him. Um, you know, he's got talent, and he is the type of player that they like, and he has the type of pedigree that they like. Uh, and, again, he's only 21, right? Like, it takes a while for point guards to mature, and they were willing to wait it out with Emmanuel Moutier. They gave another shot to Trey Burke. Um, players who weren't as talented as Dennis Smith Jr. And I guess you want to take the optics point of view. Like, this is the guy, the main guy they got in return for Kristaps Porzingis, right? Um, it shouldn't be the reason that they would keep him around and hope he hits, but it might also, you know, play into it at least subconsciously, right? Like, you always want to prove that your moves are correct. Um, you, you know, there's a natural competitiveness that everyone has uh, to validate themselves. And, and I, I would just be surprised if he's not there next year, especially since they still have him under, under contract, right? They're going to pick up, I assume they'll pick up his fourth-year option by October 31st. There's really uh, no reason not to, and, and it's not like there's an easy way to acquire a point guard between now and then. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that's a good stopping point for this second segment. The, the point guard battle uh, has now been sort of discussed. So we'll take a quick break one more time and then come back and get into some rapid-fire questions with Mike. Welcome back into Locked on Knicks, third and final segment with Mike Borkanov of The Athletic. And, Mike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start you off with, with kind of a little, little bit of a loaded question because we, we've gone back and forth oh a couple of times. Uh, what, what is your predicted starting five for next season? Uh, my predicted starting five. Okay, I think Dennis Smith Jr., R.J. Barrett, um, Marcus Morris, Mitchell Robinson, and uh, Julius Randle. Wow. Quick and painless. <laughs> I had to I had to do this exercise for a story like in July where we like planned out what the rotation might look like, and so I've I've had some thought put into it, and um I think there's a few ways you can go with it, but that's just kind of where I landed on. Do you think? I mean, not to not to sidetrack too much, but do you think that RJ will be able to succeed at the two? Like I, I know we've we've talked about it on our show a lot about whether he's going to be able to defend twos 
at a, a good enough level to really justify playing him out there as the nominal two guard and whether maybe he might be better served being a three long term because he could still he could still do all the same things, you know, offensively from the quote unquote three spot, but you know, if he's not tasked with guarding the James Hardens of the world, he might be in a little bit better shape um on the defensive end, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I think the Knicks will try to make it easier on him too, right? You know, maybe on the night when they put James Harden, it's not on RJ to guard him. They'll put Marcus Morris on him and they'll try, you know, Trier, Ellington, or Nilakina and work with their rotations like that. Like, I doubt we'll see him guarding the best um, perimeter player on every team when the Knicks play them. Uh, and so, you know, they'll, they'll match up their rotations. And, you know, we say this now in terms of, like, what the starting lineup is. Five games into the year, I have no idea what it's going to be, right? Um, depending how the Knicks are doing and, like, who's healthy. Like, all these things can change quickly. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I, I think he'll be fine as a rookie. Like, he'll have his usual problems that all rookies do. Um, and uh, I, I would, I'm more curious, really, just how he does offensively than defensively um, because I, I, I think you want to see the development there long-term because that's really why you drafted him that high, right? Like, you want to know that he become eventually that facilitating wing uh, for you rather than if you, like, I think no one's expecting him to be, a, like, a lockdown defender. So you want to see the growth offensively. You want to see the signs there. And the defense you can kind of manage over the course of a year and knowing that, like, rookie wings usually don't defend well anyway. All right, this is this is kind of an open-ended question, but um, I guess let, let's let's rule Kadeem Allen out here. But out of the guys who could potentially be in the rotation next season, who do you think is least likely to be on the team at the end of the season? <laughs> least likely? Oh man, it's yeah. like a dangerous question. Uh, what, what do they have? Like eight upcoming free agents, right? Potentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, if the like if the season goes sideways, I don't know. Todd Gibson, Bobby Portis, Wayne Ellington. Alfred Payton, Marcus Morris, um, they're all not necessarily under con- – Damian Dotson, they're all not necessarily under contract next year, right? Like, it would be reasonable to assume that the Knicks might do some house cleaning to try to build up future assets. I don't know. Pick pick one of those guys. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I just, it's just easy to group them in, like, instead of saying specifically. Like, you would, see, you would think that's the rational approach, right, if they're uh, getting to late January and they're not a playoff team that you, you start trying, uh, trying, trying to trade those chips in. Yeah, it's a good plan. I mean, I certainly – I I'm almost to the point where, unless they're genuinely pushing for the playoffs, I almost hope that that's the outcome at this point for me personally. Like, I would hope that they're trying to trade these guys away, at least some of them, because there's going to be too many mouths to feed. Like, um. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's the position you want to be in if you're an organization is just like once again trading guys away, uh, <laughs> you know, and like being nowhere at the trade deadline and having another season crater for you. Like they have so many young players, you just you need them to like eventually play for a competitive basketball team, you know, for oh, their no growth and just to see like what you have. No doubt. Yeah, I'm just saying like if they reach the point where they're at the trade deadline, like they they can still keep some vets around. You know, that's what I, like that's my general thought. Is like you want to keep some of them, but I I would think there's just such a overflow of like good role player talent on this team uh, that I'd almost hope that they explore those avenues like and are thinking about that not necessarily right from the start of the season, but if, you know, if you're at the point where you're doing better than last year but still not realistically going to make the playoffs, like I, I wouldn't be opposed to exploring the market for some guys. Sure. And I, I mean, like, the one thing that we really don't know at this point is, like, what do you get for any of those guys? I mean, like, the, the presumption is, like, oh, you know, if they're out of it, they can trade them and they get picks for it or whatever. But, like, I, I don't know. Like, it's really hard to get a first-round pick um, in the middle of a season. Most of the time it's when it's a team attaching a first to, like, dump a guy or uh, dump a contract, really, or, like, Kristaps Porzingis type situation. I think I looked it up and there was like eight first round picks traded last year before the trade deadline and something like six of them were salary dumps. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to get a first and then in that case, we'll be getting a second, a protected second. Uh, and that's maybe kind of where the trade them all away for this trove of, uh, of treasures that at the deadline can kind of fall through. Yeah. And hey. go ahead, Gavin. Yeah. Uh, I, I was just another another semi-loaded one for you, and let, let me know if you need me to repeat them because it, it's a couple of guys. But we we just did a whole episode basically 
ranking all the Knicks under 25 in terms of their likelihood to make an all-star team. So I kind of I, I want to do the same exercise with you, Mike, now that we have you on. So the, the names are R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, Kevin Knox, Dennis Smith Jr., and Alonzo Trier. Can you rank those guys from most to least likely to make at least one all-star team in their NBA career? Um, Worst to uh, most likely to least likely. All right, I, I guess um, Mitchell Robinson first, and I don't know if that's necessarily like – more of a wild card play, but just it's you know there's few really good centers in this league, um, and you know he showed a lot of promise as a rookie, and I also have seen him produce at the NBA level as opposed to RJ Barrett who's still you know as talented as he is and as um, high profile rookie as he's going to be you know I still don't know what he can do at the NBA level, and, and I guess maybe just like a little bit of positional scarcity and just taking advantage of that and haven't seen him play I guess I would put Mitchell Robinson one, and then RJ Barrett two. And uh, three, man. I, I guess I guess Kevin Knox and no, yeah, I guess Kevin Knox and then Dennis Smith Jr. are tied. You know, there's a lot of really good, there's a lot of really good point guards and there's a lot of really good wings and they're both still super young. And then um, Alonzo Trier comes in last on this list. I, I really appreciate that because we we did it yesterday with uh, with Jonathan Macri actually who I, I think you've, you've been on his podcast too and I, I was the only one who had Mitchell Robinson highest out of that group so I feel I feel a little bit vindicated now. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's hard. I you, I think the natural answer is RJ Barrett, like he's number three pick, right? Yeah. Um, you know, former number one player in his class and and all that. And I I mean like if he makes an All Star team, I'm not gonna be shocked. I think he's really good, and I think it would be reasonable to say he makes one. One day, I, but just kind of thinking it through, and just it, it's just easier to project guys you've seen play at the NBA level. At, at least it is for me. Just when you have some kind of uh, evidence of what they can do, and plus, there's so few good centers out there. You know, like in the East, especially like five years from now, yeah, you could see him making the All Star team, and I think it's just more loaded uh, at the wing position like it is every year. So, Mike, this is a kind of going in a totally different direction. Getting back into kind of what it's like covering the team. What is it like covering such a young team? Like, I know we talked, we've talked to Mark Berman before, who gave us actually some really funny stories on Mitchell Robinson, what he was like to cover, how he sort of came out of his shell throughout the year. You have guys like Knox, who, when I listen to him, I feel like Knox still is kind of on that, like, high school athlete speak, you know, where he just gives mostly, the, like, the answer that he thinks you want to hear kind of thing. Um, do you find that it's that like these guys when they're so young like that are kind of tougher to crack, like as far as getting good quotes out of them and finding things for articles, or do you find that, you know, they're generally better or, or just in some way different, you know, than covering like the, the more established veteran players that you get to cover, you know, on other teams and whatever. I, I find that as rookies, they're a little more shy or a little less willing to say what they think. Um, which you, you kind of understand from a social aspect, right? Like they're new to this whole thing. They don't want to say anything dumb. They don't want to like, you know, um, take a bigger profile than they think they should have or that they deserve at that point in their careers. And also like, you know, they're in the NBA and they're making millions of dollars and we see them on TV every day. But like, you got to remember Kevin Knox is 19. Like RJ Barrett is 19. Mitchell Robinson was 20 last year. Imagine being 19 or 20 and then just talking to people and knowing that millions of people can see your words and you understand why you'd be so careful. And obviously at that age, like you're also still trying to figure out what you think and what your voice is um, and what you can and want to say. And so it's, it's different in that way. I think it's, it's interesting to see more like the long-term growth when you're covering your, a young team, like to see how they develop as people, um, what they want to say, what they're willing to say. And, you know, Mr. Robinson, I think made a lot of strides just in the course of a year. Like he was really shy when he got to New York and he got to the Knicks and then by the end of the year, he's much more emboldened. You know, he was yelling in the locker room. Like you could see that he was a little, uh, so much more carefree um, and just enjoying everything. And cause he, you know, part of it had to do that. He's playing well. And so like he, he was confident. Um, so it's fun to like, it's fun to see how a young team comes together and, and just like how those guys understand who they are as adults and as people. And, uh, I think like it's more interesting from a from like a human perspective than it is from a basketball perspective because I think sometimes that that gets lost in all this and um, I think that's that's the interesting part is also with the young with the young team you have 
people who you don't know yet. As a writer, you're always trying to write something new um, and tell people something they don't know. And so if you're dealing with young guys who haven't had their stories told, I think that's just better ground to reporting-wise because now you can introduce you know, someone to Knicks fans, to the world, to the NBA fans, and just uh, that's something you can't necessarily do with veterans most of the time. Um, this is this is again sort of a loaded question because I'm sure a bunch of things are. Do you have easy ones for me? Like, can I just get some oh, cupcakes no, here? Absolutely not. Uh, maybe maybe at the very end. We'll, we'll, we'll Give the hard ones to Berman, man. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, was, I was about to reference him, but uh, I what I guess Berman actually when, when we asked him this, he, he had something about like Mitchell Robinson, um, like describing him as like a bus driver or something, and it was, it was pretty funny. And I remember um, you just like I feel like I, I used to cover. Just, just like Suns practices, and like just inevitably, if you're around an NBA arena or a team long enough, you just get like some weird interactions with a player or like someone from a road team you've never seen before, like some weird answer or just like some strange thing happening. It was there just like one moment last year that like really stood out to you, like was just like either incredibly funny or strange or off-putting or like I can't believe this guy's like that or I can't believe this guy just said that. Just, like one kind of flashbulb memory just covering the team last season. I'm trying to think now. I don't think so. I think, like, a lot of it was just around um, – I think by the end of the year, like, Mitchell Robbins was just kind of willing to be the class clown. Um, and so I, I think that was, like, the things I remember from inside the locker room, how just uh, – how more free he was. I don't know if there's anything that comes to mind specifically in, in that regard. Um, I wish I had an anecdote for you. God, I'd be the person that I hate talking to if I was a reporter. Uh, I got nothing. I'm sorry. My memory's hazy, so if I think of something, I'll come back to you. Like, I'll email you or something. You okay, can just perfect. read it live. Perfect. Okay. This is a good idea. <laughs> That'll, that actually would be pretty it in retroactively and be like, updated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just add an editor's note at the end. Right, right, right. <laughs> Mike remembered 10 minutes after the podcast. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, keeping it sort of on theme there, who's your – and it's, it's kind of rough now. It, you know, we'll just – we'll put it in the scope of all last season because obviously there's so much turnover and so many new faces. But what player was your favorite interview last year? Like the, the guy that you had the most fun talking to? Oh, that's easy. Hazonia. Hazonia was great. Um, he was, he's really fun guy, chill dude. Like he was willing to, to be real with you. And I'm always fan of players who curse openly. Um, and Hazonia cursed openly. And there's one great conversation I had with him actually that I never got a chance to run. We talked for like 15 minutes. Um, after one practice and then just it never developed into a story I could write, but he was, he was a great guy to talk to. And like, he was always, you know, truthful in the sense that NBA players are truthful with the media. Uh, and he was always, you know, just, he was always there, which you really appreciate too. Like when someone's always at their locker, no matter what, willing to talk to the media and just kind of realistic in his perspective and understands what we're trying to do and, uh, is helpful and, you know, gave some good anecdotes and, I'll miss that guy in the locker room, media-wise. Um, I remember it, it was about a year ago now. Howard Beck put out a podcast with uh, Jason Lloyd, uh, Dave McMenamin, and Joe Varden, and they were just talking about like sort of like the camaraderie and and the enjoyment of covering a team together. It was actually like one of the two or three best NBA podcasts I think I've heard in the last five years. I know that the Knicks beat just because there is that sort of clear divide between like new media and like the newspaper guys. Like, do, do you guys hang out together? Like, are there friendships? Do you grab a beer or dinner on the road? Like what, what, what is that, um, I guess, chemistry like? Uh, I think we all hate each other. I've actually doxed Steve Popper like five times. <laughs> just like his personal information is out there if you look hard enough. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, we, we all get along for the most part. Um, I, you know, I didn't know what to expect when I got on the beat. Like, I think like everyone else, I read that New York Observer story for, from like 10, 12 years ago now. Uh, I think in media circles, the Knicks beat is legendary um, in its perceived acrimony. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I like to say, having heard some of the stories from way back one, it, it's gotten a little bit chiller. Um, it's a little more relaxed now. I don't think that there's anyone with any outward hatred for someone else. I could be wrong. They might just be really good at hiding it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, we hang out. You know, you'll get a beer after a game or like the night before a game when you get into a city. Um, we all talk, we text. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no hatred that I know of. And maybe it's because everyone hates me. And so like they just <laughs> show me to all the cool stuff and I think I'm on the inside, but I'm actually not. 
Yeah. So if you have like Chris Eisman on, I'm sure he'll tell you the real story because uh, everyone loves Chris. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we do need to get we do need to get Chris on again because we had him on a while back and and asked him. He seemed to say the same thing though that everybody tends to get along. So, yeah, so maybe, yeah, it maybe might be both. You're right. Like we're all like best friends, but I think you know there's a level of you know closeness and friendliness there. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's always good to hear. It's far cry from the the peak uh, uh, Isola versus Berman of the Post days, I guess. Well, but uh, we, as far asked, as we asked Berman about that, and he said, didn't he like kind of say it was like overhyped a little bit? And he's like, he, he's sort of cool with Isola, or was I? Am I misremembering that? No, yeah, they, he did say that. He said that he said that they're not best friends or anything, but they also don't despise each other. So, <laughs> no, it's also different because the media landscape was different, right? Like back then, it was. You know, the Daily News versus the Post and the Times. And, you know, basically before the Internet, as I'm, you know, sometimes explained to me because I might be a little too young for it. But, like, um, you know, you bought one paper, right? Like, that was your news source. So there's a competitiveness for eyeballs that maybe isn't as uh, singular as it is now, right? Like, my view of the Internet is that if you're a Knicks fan, you're probably reading a lot of things. You're not just going to one place. Um and so that that same kind of just the like zero sum game doesn't exist anymore, um, and I, I think maybe that's cooled the tensions down a little bit. Uh, and I I think that's kind of like my theory of it. And maybe it's just different personalities now. Like I don't really know anyone who's uh, who's too manic on the beat who would really um, increase the temperature. And, and so I, I think that's probably explains why it's a little calmer now. I would guess not having been there for the good old days. No, I think you're definitely correct in that respect. It's it's a lot different now because every day, I mean, I know I wake up and read, you know, uh, if you put out something, I'll read your story. If, uh, you know, if Bagley puts out something, I'll read his. If Berman puts something out, I'll read his. You know, I'll read like five, six different news stories in the morning, and it's it's just different. You know, it's it's all online. It's all accessible. I check your guys' Twitter feeds constantly, you know, stuff like that. It's just everything is way more accessible now, and there's I feel like there is – less competition in many ways. So I, I think you're correct in that respect. Yeah. There's a competition amongst all of us to get the best story and the news and all that. But I don't know if, if it's like the same type of competition uh, in terms of like, you know, I only read, you know, the New York Times or the Post or uh, the Daily News as there was 15, 20 years ago, right? Like now, now you have so many great outlets out there that I think people are just, you know, spread their time around a little bit differently and hopefully subscribe to the athletic as well. Uh, I do personally, but uh, mostly for your articles. If I'm being completely frank, because <laughs> we I have a lot of great writers out there. I don't know if you like any other sports, but there's good stuff out there. I check out the Mets, the Mets stuff as well. Jets, great, you know, great. everything. Yeah, we have, we cover soccer now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a big soccer guy, but I do know. <laughs> I, yeah, you guys really do have have uh, writers all over the place covering everything at this point. It's really become quite a an operation. Um, I guess we'll just, uh, unless Gavin has another question to ask after this, uh, cause I love all this on the beat stuff. I find it all to be very fun. Um, do you have any fun stories with the other beat writers or like a, uh, favorite road trip or anything like that that stands out to you from your time that you've been on the beat? Well, I guess let me ask before before you go on. I, I'm curious, why do you like the on the beat stories? Like, why? Because I thought about this too. It's like why fans and people who aren't on the beat care about what's going on amongst the writers. We're just the people spilling the ink and writing the stuff that goes online. Like, we're not the actual subjects, right? Like, you're a Knicks fan. You don't care about the guy who writes about the Knicks. So I, to I me, to yeah, me personally, at least, yeah, Gavin, you can add yours after this. But to me personally, at least, I think it's fun to get a peek behind the curtain because I personally, I mean, I went to school for journalism. I've now ended up in podcasting, blogging, whatever the hell else. But I mean, to me, I, I, I've done some of this to some degree, you know, covering high school, college sports, stuff like that. Um, it's fun to hear about it at the higher level. I think generally though, people like it because at least for me, I see you guys interact on Twitter together and stuff. And it's like, it, it's interesting to me to see like, Oh, are they like this in real life? Like, is this how things really go? Are you guys all just like bullshitting with each other, like online? You know what I mean? Like, is it just, and, and that sort of gets into the whole thing we were just talking about of the, the beat being friendly together and stuff like that, that it's, 
you know, it does seem like it all kind of translates over. But also, I mean, I don't know. It's fun to talk about something other than just the Knicks every once in a while, too. That's my other thing. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you. I'm just curious from from uh, from my aspect, too. I, you know, like, I've been on – we go out to dinner. Like, we'll hang out on the road. Um, sometimes it's a lot of just bleary-eyed, like, 6 a.m. flights out of a city to get to the next city or to get home. Uh, it's a, like I used to cover baseball, and that was a lot different because you're in a city for three days – um, you have more free time per se. And like, you know, when I was on the Mets beat, we were all kind of closer in age and like, we'd go to Disney world together or Disneyland, whichever is the one in Orlando. I forget. Um, I, I think the Knicks beat is a little bit different. We're all, you know, we're all friendly with each other. Like no one, like I said, no, there's no assholes there. Uh, and we'll get dinners on the road and it's just the NBA schedule is just different. I've noticed. Um, it's not as conducive to socializing, I think. And you mentioned that podcast with Jason Lloyd and Joe Varden. And uh, I think Dave McMenamin was the third one. Uh, I think those guys were on the beat for like five years, like 10, eight years, something like a long time together. And, you know, and they got into the postseason and like, that's a different type of crucible as opposed to covering, you know, the slog of 17 win seasons together. And I think, you know, I've been on the beat for like roughly a year and a half. Chris has been there just about the same time I have, and um, Steve's popped on and off, but he's been there for a while, and Mark obviously uh, has been there for a long time, and I think just the dynamic is just a little bit different, just because we're not all the same age, and, you know, we all have different, um, you know, just different experiences that I think, like, those three guys had, but, you know, I enjoy getting dinner with those guys, I enjoy getting a beer, like, it's all fun. I don't know if I have any crazy stories uh, for you that I can, like, just throw out there. All right. So, you know, Mike, we'll, we'll give you a season. Um, maybe maybe there's a wild night in Portland out there for you guys, and uh, we'll, 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 we'll let it marinate for a year. And, there actually was a wild night in Portland a few years ago, but that one I can't mention. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that you actually, John. I, 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 I remembered I, it. I might have some intel on it. Um, yeah, anyways. Uh, well, we'll end it on that note. Uh, Mike, we, we can't thank you enough for coming on. And before we send you off, uh, what, what's coming up for you guys on The Athletic? And what did you write about over the summer in case people want to catch up? What did I do this summer? Um, <laughs> I just wrote a story that went up uh, today, Thursday, seven questions about the Knicks uh, and the dilemma for David Fisdale heading into the season. You know, uh, you know, we'll get the preseason stuff, the preview stuff, like ramping up. Um, I think training camp obviously starting soon in a few weeks. Um, or sooner, depending on when you listen to this, and it's just kind of getting to the into the you know nature of things as the season begins, and you're just trying to figure out what this Knicks team will look like. And you know, I hope everyone subscribes to the Athletic. Uh, I think it's a good deal. I think we do some really good stuff, and not only just the Knicks coverage, but everything else. Uh, and um, yeah, that that's about it. That's my cell. Read us at the Athletic at the Knicks. You know, we're going to have a lot more Knicks stories on there very soon. We're going to be writing much more frequently because the season is near and all the media stuff and availability begins very quickly. And once the season starts, you know, I, I think our coverage is up there with anyone else's, and I think it's worth reading. You guys should you should check it out. No, no it's, it's, it's a great website. I was someone who was just hesitant to subscribe for a while because I'm cheap, but it's it's so worth it. And I know the insight I get. 50 a month, 4 bucks a month. Right. It's not bad bad at all. And like, I was going to just say like the insight I get, like for all my teams collectively is, is unmatched by any other website. So it really is worth it. And with that, Mike, we we really appreciate you coming on and we will wrap up this edition of the locked on Knicks podcast. Uh, We just had a loaded week of guests in case you missed it. Jonathan Macri on earlier this week, a couple of others, a couple other great ones coming up. So stay tuned on locked on Knicks. We are rolling right now.